After this, I looked, and there was a door that had been opened in heaven. The first voice that I had heard, which sounded like a trumpet, said to me, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was filled with spirit-inspired trance, and I saw a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on the throne. The one seated there looked like jasper, and surrounding the throne was a rainbow that looked like an emerald. Twenty-four thrones with twenty-four elders seated upon them surrounded the throne. The elders were dressed in white clothing and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came lightning, voices, and thunder. In front of the throne, there were seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a glass sea, like crystal, was in front of the throne. In the center by the throne were four living creatures encircling the throne. These creatures were covered with eyes on the front and on the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a human being. And the fourth living creature was like an eagle in flight. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, and each was covered all around and on the inside with eyes. They never rest day or night, but keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is coming. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, who lives forever and always, the 24 elders fall before the one seated on the throne. They worship the one who lives forever and always. They throw down their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. It is by your will that they existed and were created. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. It had writing on the front and on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. I saw a powerful angel who proclaimed in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside it. So I began to weep and weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has emerged victorious so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which are God's seven spirits, sent out into the whole earth. He came forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each held a harp and a gold bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They took up a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and by your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe language, people, and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will rule on earth. Then I looked, and I heard the sound of many angels surrounding the throne, the living creatures, and the elders. They numbered in the millions, thousands upon thousands. They said in a loud voice, Worthy is the slaughtered lamb to receive power, wealth, wisdom, and might, and honor, 
blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, I heard everything everywhere say, blessing, honor, glory, and power belong to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and always. Then the four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Yeah, give them a round of applause. That was great. So the work of the Spirit is often really mysterious and subtle. John's Gospel quotes Jesus saying that the Spirit blows wherever it pleases and you can't hear it or tell where it's coming from or where it's going towards. That gentle breeze, that breath, surrounds us so completely that we often lose sensitivity to our movements. We walk around daily in a world charged with the grandeur of God, mostly unimpressed, forgetful, or inattentive to the pain and the joy within us and around us that we've been called to in this cosmic drama of redemption. Up until now in this Revelation story, it's been pretty straightforward, no? Like, Jeremiah did a really good job last week uh, in my stead, Um, but all the things that have been happening have been happening in places you could see on a map. Patmos, or the seven churches in Asia, which these places still exist, even if they're not familiar to us other than in the Bible. But now, in chapter 4, things start to get kind of weird, and something opens up. We're told that John is, quote, unquote, in the spirit, or the translation they read said, is in a spirit-induced trance, right? Now things are happening on a whole nother dimension, which was there, of course, the whole time. But now it is accessible. Like we have access to what's going on. In the spirit, John and us are transported to where we already are. Transported to where we already are, in the midst of God's heavenly throne room. Life in the spirit is a life of continual reawakening. It's reawakening our senses and our imaginations and our attention and our hearts to what and to who is already always before us. In the spirit, we're before the face of God. And this is a really audacious claim. And we make this claim every week by showing up here when we gather together. To the uninitiated or to the unexpectant, we're, this is really weird stuff. Like, if you ever bring a neighbor that's never been to church, they're like, this is kind of strange. I feel kind of strange. We're, if, if you're not expecting it, if you don't have eyes for it, we're just kind of a bunch of weirdos sitting around waiting for something to happen or singing songs, casting messages in bottles that might never come back to us. Eugene Peterson talks about this in his book on Revelation that y'all should read, or maybe you shouldn't read because then you would know how much I'm quoting it every week, right? He says, Christians worship with a conviction that they are in the presence of God. Worship is an act of attention to the living God who rules, speaks, and reveals, and creates, and redeems, and orders, and blesses. And outsiders observing these acts of worship see nothing like that. They see a few people singing unpopular songs. Sorry, Katie. Sometimes off-key, never Katie. Uh, Someone reading from an old book and making remarks that may or may not interest other listeners. Sorry. 
and then eating and drinking small portions of bread and wine that are supposed to give nourishment to their eternal souls in the same way that beef and potatoes sustain their mortal flesh. Let those who have eyes see, right? But on this Pentecost Sunday, we celebrate the gift, the pouring out of this awakening spirit. This spirit that opens us out to God's work in and among and through us. The spirit that opens us up to lives of worship in God's presence. I want to look at some of what this scene in Revelation 4 and 5 that Lauren and Will each read. Some of what it tells us about worship. I feel like each week there's like kind of like a decoder section of this. And Okay, so this is kind of the decoder section of what we just read, right? First off, worship is all-encompassing. It's not just for me, and it's certainly not just for part of me. This is what the periphery of this like kaleidoscopic scene is telling us. Before you get distracted on image on image, and, and that'll happen because there's just so many things happening right here. Like when I was cutting out stuff to make that collage, I, I didn't even get all of it. There's like 75 layers in Photoshop right there, and, and we didn't even get all of it, right? But before you get distracted by image on image, take a second to actually be overwhelmed by it all. You're kind of supposed to. That's kind of the point. It's excessive on purpose. There's like a sheer clutter to it. What you're not reading is a calm, quiet scene with just you and Jesus and a latte, like quiet time together. No, this scene, this worship scene, is uncontainable and all-encompassing. And here are a few things that are happening. Like Jasper Carnelian, does anyone know what Carnelian looks like? An emerald. Like, things shift all of a sudden when we're in this heavenly throne room to simile language. Do you remember what a simile is? Using like or as, um, right? Get used to, when it comes to worship, get used to not being able to look at God head on or to pin God down with like precise, tidy language. The worshiping life of praise and prayer is always grasping for not good enough language. When you, when you worship, you put away your dictionary and get out your thesaurus. You need more words. You need better words. Your words and concepts aren't enough, and your most precious thoughts and your most precious stones are not even valuable enough. That's a little bit of what's going on there. Or in the scene, you have these 24 thrones and elders with white robes and golden crowns. These are the new and the old people of God worshiping together. The 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples, all living stones being built into something. No matter where you map on this or when you got grafted into this tree, you'll bear fruit. You'll wear a crown, but it's not about you. It's, it's worth repeating. It's not about you. You are royalty. You are wearing a crown because you are related to the king. That's what this image is about. And then have this, uh, these images of lightning and thunder voices, right? 
when you hear lightning and thunder and voices, think Sinai. Think when God speaks to Moses. Think Psalm 29. I, I think we have Psalm 29, Matt. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord breaks into pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a wild young ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord, he's a wordy songwriter, twists the oaks and strips the forest bare and all in the temple cry glory. This is a voice with lightning and thunder. And then we have the glassy sea. We already burnt holy, holy, holy last week, so we didn't sing it this week. Marcus took that one. But there's this line about uh, casting down their golden crowns upon the glassy sea, right? But this glassy sea, think of the waters over which the wind of God sweeps and ruminates and brings about life and order and hope and possibility from chaos and void. Think about the Red Sea that was passed through for deliverance while Pharaoh's army got drowned. Think about the Jordan River where Jesus joins with sinners and the sky rips open. It opens in Luke. It rips open in Mark to express Jesus' God-belovedness and God's good pleasure. And then there's this image of a rainbow. And think Noah. Think that time when there will be no more flood, when there will be no more destruction, when God hangs God's bow into the sky because in this like cosmic ceasefire. So you have all these things going on. And then you start to work towards the center. And you have four living things. Again, in simile form. Like an ox. Like a lion. Like something with a human face. And like an eagle in flight. Even all of creation worships God. These are like symbolic containers to try to hold everything that is. From the domesticated strength and industriousness of an ox. You can put a bridle on an ox. You should put a bridle on an ox. To the apex predation and untamability of the lion. The top of the food chain of the lion. From the pinnacle of creation, God's own image-bearing humanity, one like a human, to the, ma the majesty of an eagle in flight. And an eagle in flight still signifies freedom and, and glory and possibility. All creation, the entire community of creation, at its best and truest, gathers around the throne in praise. And, and in gathering around the throne in praise, finds its best, truest self. Before the throne, each, even in their vast differences, finds similarity in their attention and in their action. I think that's why they're covered with eyes and wings. That's one of the weirdest details, to be honest with you. But if you're covered with eyes, it means you are living aperture wide open to behold God. Letting all the light that is God in. 
Before the throne, we all become like the angel in Isaiah 6. Do you remember that? The angel has six wings covering its eyes and, and private parts and, and fluttering still and saying, holy, holy, holy. And that's what we all become. That's what all creation becomes is, is ones gathering before the, the throne with wings galore, ready to be sent out, saying, here I am by the holy, holy, holy one. You're starting to see worship is a really peculiar affair. Get rid of any notion that it's about you or that you're that close to the center of any of it and then fall instead into the dance. Like sync up with a chorus that's already been going, even if it sounds crazy. Like Diedrich Bonhoeffer talks about uh, how life often seems like a polyphony with all these different parts that are kind of dissonant and discordant and we don't know how they fit into the whole. But life around the throne is, is in sync with this like pulsing, steady baseline, this cantus firmus that is carrying us through, that unites us all, that we can grab onto. So first and foremost, worship is all-encompassing. <coughs> Secondly, worship is deeply political. Worship in the spirit is deeply political. It's not just my heart, it's also the hand on top of my heart. It's like dealing with allegiance, not just happy thoughts. Most of us have been taught that worship is the stuff of our hearts. And I think that's true. Our hearts really guide us. Sometimes our hearts are more reliable than our heads because we just can't wrap our head around something or we need more data or there's a million ways to compute data so it comes out in different ways but, but we, we know where our hearts are aiming or sometimes we don't. That's the problem. To love something though is to invest in it to love something is to form habits around it. Where your treasure is, that's also where your heart is. There's, uh, we're trying to figure out, um, is our heart leading us or is our heart being led by different desires, right? But when love gets really serious is when you start answering questions about who and what you'd be willing to die for. That's, that's when you know that you really love something. Um, and then, like, kind of a perversion on that or an upsetting twist is to know who or what you'd be willing to kill for, right? Um, I, I posit that it's way more costly to say that I'm willing to die for you than I'm willing to kill for you, right? Like, that's, uh, we'll get back to that, though. But on the outskirts of this true worship scene are people becoming so invested that they are learning to give up their lives to and for someone or something else. You see, this is a deeply religious way of talking. Like John's Gospel says, greater love has no, none but this, that you'd give your life for a brother, right? This is uh, involved in a great tradition and propels a great tradition of martyrs and prophets who willfully give themselves up to God and for God. But this is not only a or not only a religious way of talking, it's also really political. You see, there are plenty of other stories and there's plenty of other objects of worship that require the giving of a life on different levels. Uh, like some of us give our life to work. We give our life to school. We, we give our life to our family. We give our life uh, for prosperity. That might be economic or might be other kinds. We, uh, people give 
give their lives for our country. Uh, there, are, we give our lives for ideas that, that make us feel significant or that um, make us feel uh, rooted, our, our, our heritage. Um, not all of these things are necessarily bad, and not all of them always require the actual shedding of blood, but some do quite regularly, and each might, right? Each, in subtle or not so subtle ways, wants a center seat here in this place, wants to be gathered around. And, and, and it's the center seat that our passage reminds us is only a spot for the slaughtered lamb, the lamb who is slain. Each wants to be heaped with praise that only belongs to the lamb. Heaped with praise that they are worthy. And, and if we remember worthy, the root of the word worship is worthy. When we say we worship something, we're saying it's, it's worth our time and our attention and our whole lives. And so each of these things wants to be known as worthy to receive the things that are in this song. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Do you start to see the slippage here between religious and political? Worship is an inherent statement of what is worth our time, worth our resources, worth our imaginations, worth our sacrifices, worth our very life. This is no longer in a religious zone. This is political through and through. This would have been like foregrounded for the listeners of John's apocalypse, not like in a deep subtext. Because they had known about Caligula. Caligula was a Roman ruler in the mid-first century. And Caligula was a crazy man. Um, but he was the sort of crazy man that actually was clarifying. Uh, Caligula was like an apocalypse because you didn't have to guess what he was thinking. He, you knew he was going to tell you who he was, and he was going to tell you that he thought he was a god because he would go around acting like Apollo or he would see statues of other gods in, in, in the Pantheon and in, in uh, places of, of uh, worship and allegiance, and he would take the heads off of these statues he'd put his own head on, right? Um, Caligula was going to tell you what he, what he wanted. Um, and so Christians and, and early Christians and, and Jews, especially in the first century, knew about Caligula because Caligula put out um, this, this order that Philo, uh, this ancient historian, records uh, that he ordered a giant statue of himself to be placed at the center of the Holy, Holy, the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. And Philo records... Um, <clears throat> like an eyewitness testimony to this, he says, we were all struck dumb with astonishment and terror at what he had told us and stood still deprived of all motion. They were just struck senseless by this idea that this megalomaniac Caligula would try to come in their worship space and be the one to be worshipped. I think this impulse like, is at the heart of most of our p political life some people will show you that or tell you that, and most others just kind of operate that way really subtly, right? Like, Caligula knew that he wanted to be at the center of the worship life of God's people. Even if it wasn't his God, he was going to become that, their God. It was really inconceivable for these worshipers of God that this could even be possible. 
They sniffed this out right away, and it left them so dumbstruck that they couldn't even move. There was no room for them on the throne for anything or anyone that was sub-God. There's a word for that, and it's, it's funny because in all the hoopla surrounding what we mostly think about Revelation, the word's not even found in Revelation, but when something sub-God tries to be God, it's called Antichrist, actually. <laughs> That's what's happening here. That's what Caligula was doing and being. So um, I'm going to be a little risky here and, and talk about current events because a week ago, perhaps we might have seen a little bit of like a modern liberal democratic version of this when a certain evangelical leader declared that last Sunday should be a national day of prayer for our current president. Like, don't get me wrong, we should pray frequently and publicly for our political leaders. But somehow this president played, played golf and made his way into a house of worship in the, mi- in the middle of the service and wanted to stand in the middle of things. It's just this, I can kind of just feel this like icky impulse of trying to be at the center of the community of God's, of God's people in the middle of their worship, trying to interrupt and to displace. And maybe this isn't Caligula, but it's, it's, it's something, and I think it's significant. Um, in, in the aftermath of that, um, I read a quote from a uh, really amazing uh, black Anglican theologian, uh, Esau Macaulay, and he was kind of describing this event and how he felt about it and kind of some ideas toward about the church's response. And he said, we need a, th- a theology of the church's witness that goes beyond 2 Timothy 2, which was quoted in the prayer and is amazing. Um, but he says, we need a theology uh, of the church's witness that also includes John's critique of Rome in Revelation, Isaiah's condemnation of wicked foreign powers, Daniel's witness to Babylon, Nathan's witness to David, and John the Baptist's rebuke of Herod, and Jesus's words about Herod. Each of these witnesses knew really well how political worship really is and how tempting it is for God's people to get caught up and compromised with other objects of worship, known in God's story as idols. Even good things and even good people can be idols. They're just not God. (laughs) Only blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one seated on the throne of the Lamb forever and always. That's a direct quote from what they read this morning. Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and always. Full stop. Not to the one with the nuclear codes, not to the one making promises of wealth or health or prosperity or victory by might, or not to the ones that shoehorn themselves onto a throne that they can't fit, don't fill, and don't belong on. Only to a Lamb who is worthy, and the Lamb is worthy because the Lamb was slain. The, the slaughter is not incidental. It's part of Jesus' whole ministry. It's part of what makes him worthy for us. That he was slain he, because he sacrificed for us and in our place. So, real quick, uh, an important but last point about worship, worship in the spirit. It's that worship in the spirit is gravitational. That means it's not just a direction or it's not just an idea. That 
that the gathering is actually an important part of this, that we're gathered around the throne, that we're oriented towards the throne. And amidst the chaos and the polyphony of thousands upon thousands of worshipers from every tribe and language and people and nation bought by Jesus' blood and made a kingdom and priest, that there is focus. That you get the sense that they are worshiping in the round here. And concentric circles that are all slightly turned towards the center. When I officiate weddings, uh, Brian and Elizabeth will will probably get this pep talk uh, at some point. I often give like a pro tip to the wedding party that you always want to be oriented to the center of things. Normally it's kind of to the bride, but then when the bride and groom are being joined together, your your body, you're, you're witnessing with your body the directionality of, of what is important and what's going on there. So if you have a goofball groomsman who is standing face forward, it's pretty noticeable that he's not invested in what's going on here. Everyone, and you kind of track with it as the bride comes down, you, you kind of track her by orienting yourself. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on here. There's, there's a gravity to what is happening here at the center. It's, This seems basic, but I think it's got big-time ramifications for our worship and also our lives of discipleship. It allows our worship to be dynamic and gravitational because what we see has worth and gravity to it. It wants more of us. It wants to pull us in. It's not just directional. Like, directional would be helpful, but kind of a mistake to say always face forward because you wouldn't be tracking the object of worth. We get this wrong when we seek to worship a personal God by just aiming ourselves one way. And for some of us, this might be a course correction for us in our worship. Like when we were kids, maybe we were taught um, to follow Jesus, we need to to aim this way and start walking. And maybe even for a time that that was helpful because we were walking towards Jesus, but maybe at some point we just like kind of kept walking and missed Jesus. Like, this would be like me giving you directions to Chicago and saying, just go north. And that's helpful to an extent until you get past Chicago and you're, you need to go west, right? Um, and, and it would also not be very helpful to say, just go Midwest, right? Like <laughs> that's maybe beside the point. But you, you need to be responsive and awake to, to following um, the object of your worship. And I think that's what's happening in this scene. And I think when this goes wrong, uh, it turns us kind of deaf, dumb, and blind to the way we worship. In, in the Hebrew scriptures, when an object of worship is deaf, dumb, or blind, that's an idol also. So you see we keep coming back to like fake worship or bad worship or worship of wrong things is always manifests as idolatry. And this can also, so this can happen in really, um, really kind of like uh, rigid, um, kind of fundamentalist ways, but it can also happen in other well-meaning ways where, you know, uh, maybe you've got a new lens in which to live your life of faith. And maybe this lens is love or this lens is liberation. And these are really helpful and good things that get you closer to and, and back on track and following Jesus. But maybe they're not always precise enough. Maybe the directions can be too vague and cause us not always to be completely turned towards our target or, or to be completely turned by where God is working in the world. 
This heavenly throne room gives us an image to help us here. The image is that everything keeps falling down. <laughs> over and over when Will and Lauren were reading, it says the elders just kept falling on their faces. And then they'd get up and sing. And then they'd fall on their faces. And then they'd get up and sing. And then they'd fall on their faces. And then they'd be joined by the uh, ones like an animal with lots of eyes and lots of wings. And then they would fall down. And then they'd get up and sing. Right? Everything keeps falling down. Uh, the 24 el elders, they fall down. They throw down their crowns, too. And then they hit reset on their worship instincts because they know that when they lift up their heads, the object of their worship, the lamb, is still going to be there. Maybe they were a little off, they fall down on their face, and they pick up and they can reorient to the lamb. The living creatures fall down and they trust that the lamb's wisdom is going to be enough to open up the scroll, to interpret and to fulfill God's word, to be the question and to be the answer, to trust in the spirit, to draw them back by God's gravity. I think, that again, I, I always have a hard time landing the plane on these because we're just continuing. We're going to keep marching in this. So this is like a to be continued, but I want to close with um, a really well-known passage from uh, Romans 12 that really stuck out to me in this. And this is, I don't know if I have this up there. No? Okay. Uh, Y'all might know this. This is Romans 12, 1 and 2, and you can go this week and, and read it, maybe even memorize it. And, and Paul's writing to a church in Rome that is surrounded and pressed in upon by all of these forces of empire and all of these allures of different kinds of worship. And, and he's laid this case of God's amazing grace and amazing salvation and amazing inclusion of Gentiles into God's family. And in light of all those things and in light of the Spirit's work, in chapter 12 he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The reason this stuck out to me is that's exactly what that entire heavenly throne room is surrounding, a living sacrifice, the slaughtered lamb that was slain and given new life by the spirit and lives and reigns forever. So we're to fix our eyes upon a living sacrifice and become living sacrifices. He goes on to say, holy and acceptable to God, and that's your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and complete and whole. Will you all pray with me? Lord, as you... Fill us with your spirit, like John, transport us to where we already are, right in your presence. The kingdom of the heavens are at hand, and you are at work in our midst. You are to be praised. You are fighting battles on our behalf. Open our eyes and ears and minds and hearts um, that we might uh, see and feel and participate in that work. Uh, open our imaginations that... We see these normal places, this normal old church building that's been full of your worship has all these components, a baptistry, uh, the waters that we enter into relationship with you, a pulpit um, that uh, is the place 
of, of your word um, and uh, this table, this focus, this place of gravity that always calls us in uh, to receive from your grace, always fixes our eyes. Uh, Lord, help us orient our lives uh, to you um, each day. Let's be renewed um, and transformed by these new minds that you give us by the Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.